The word Advent comes from the Latin word meaning arrival. This season attempts to turn back our hearts in order to look at the arrival of Christ, the coming child as a babe, and also to look forward to his return as the coming king. Whenever you have a visitor coming, you look forward to it with hope and anticipation. In this season where we remember the Christ child, may we ever be looking, ever longing, ever living for him. One verse that has started people looking is the verse Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. When we talk about the virgin birth, it's important to realize that the story doesn't begin with the angel Gabriel in Luke chapter 1. We go back 700 years before that, and the prophet Isaiah is given a message from God about this very event. Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. As mentioned earlier uh, in the previous message, there are some who say that this word should be translated young woman. And in fact, there, at least one Bible translation does translate it this way. Now, this is perhaps true in a way, but misleading. Of the eight different places in the Old Testament where um, this word is translated, it can only mean virgin in seven of those occasions. So virgin is the normal way to translate this Hebrew word. So speaking on behalf of God, Isaiah is saying, I'm going to give you a sign. And this is how you will know for sure that God has sent to you, his Messiah. What sign is it that the prophet promises? That the Messiah will be born of a young woman? That hardly narrows it down. The sign is that he will be born to a virgin. Matthew quotes this verse in the first chapter of his gospel, claiming that these things took place so that the prophecy would be fulfilled. And he translates the verse from Hebrew into Greek with the Greek word that can only mean virgin. Very clearly, he understood it to be that. Even Jewish religious leaders recognized that the prophet Isaiah was speaking about a virgin. How do we know? Because when they translated Isaiah 7.14 from Hebrew into Greek, they used the word parthenos, which means, you guessed it, virgin. These religious leaders understood 
the miraculous nature of this prophecy. How would Israel recognize the coming of this Christ child? The way was that he would be born as a miracle. Well, why did the babe come? Galatians 4. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Did Jesus come that we might marvel at the cuteness of a little baby? Oh, Miriam, look at this. This baby is so cute. Is that why he came? Or did he come to change things? Yeah, to change things, to make a difference. He's a change agent. He came to make a change for our benefit. And he changed the relationship we have with God. He redeemed us. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, which could only happen if he came as a babe, because of his sacrifice, we are forgiven. And along with that, we get adoption as sons. Talk about a change. We went from being his enemies to being adopted children of God. Now that's close, isn't it? Isn't that a wonderful blessing? We are close to God. Have you stopped to consider how different the world might be if Jesus had never been born? Now, although some unbelievers today consider Christianity and its founder, you know, the world would be better off if he had never come. We just need to stamp out any rudiments of this old fake religion, they would say. But have you stopped to consider, if you did that, how different the world might be. Well, it is true that he wouldn't have purchased this salvation, and that would be different, and we're going to get to that. But there's more to it than that. Did Christ make a difference in the world we live in? And as you're going to see, we're going to give seven reasons why he made a profound difference in different ways in different areas. D. James Kennedy shares, and, and, and he wrote a book along with Jerry Newcomb called What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? And I owe a great deal to that book for this message. D. James Kennedy shares, in the 18th century, there was a great attack on foreign missionaries by the London Times. That might be kind of comparable to the New York Times today. And he continues, an experienced traveler wrote a letter to the editor of the, that paper in which he criticized this attitude of being down on foreign missionaries. The letter's writer said that such an attitude on the part of a voyager, a traveler, was particularly inexcusable. For should he happen to be cast ashore on some uncharted island, he would devoutly pray that the, season, that the lesson of the missionary had 
preceded him. What message, what biblical message would that be? Well, maybe like love your neighbor, don't eat your neighbor. The writer of the letter was no less, the writer of this letter defending Christianity, amazingly, was no less than Charles Darwin, a later enemy of the Christian faith. Nevertheless, he recognized the useful value of the faith. Perhaps nothing could be more applicable, applicable in this season in which we celebrate the birth of Christ into human form than stopping to consider just how great an impact he made on this world. Immediately we think of our mission to save man, of course, but he did more than that. First, because Christ lived, the world has attached a new value to human life. Now, we don't get it, but back in his day, before his day, after his day, apart from Christianity, life was cheap. Life was dispensable in a variety of ways. Abortion did take place back then. More likely, however, they would simply put babies that were unwanted, often female babies, put babies that were unwanted out and expose them to die or to be eaten by animals. That was, life is just expensive. Life is cheap. When Christianity came, there's a new understanding. And it's based in the Old Testament as well. Christ followed the Old Testament. There we read in Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. And we're not sure of all that entails, but certainly I think it includes the fact that man has intellect, man has emotion, mankind, men and women have a will. They're sentient beings. They have the ability to choose to understand things and to make moral choices. Mankind is a moral being. And I know a lot of people push back against that, but just simply ask anyone, is there anyone anywhere doing something, you know, regardless of who you're asking, is there anyone anywhere doing something that you don't think is right? And almost to an individual, they will all say, well, yeah. Well, see, we're moral beings. We're made in the image of God. God is a moral being. We have worth. And this includes even those that do not recognize Christ. Even the staunchest atheist has value. The concept of sanctity of life is a spiritual concept. The word sanctity comes from the Latin word sanctus, which means holy or sacred to God. That which God has declared to be of great value, and that's you. Even in the world today, when you get into areas where Christianity is not the prominent religion, human life is cheap. Christianity has changed the value attached to human life, especially to children and to women and to elderly. 
prior to Christian influence, a woman's life was very cheap. In fact, in many cases, the woman was considered merely the property of the husband, to do with as he liked, to abuse as he liked, to dispense with as he liked. Christianity brought great value to women everywhere. Charles Spurgeon heard of a woman who was sharing that she believed that, she as a Hindu woman believed that the Bible must have written, must have been amazingly written because everywhere in her religion, when women were talked about, they were spoken of with disrespect. But Christ held women in great respect and high regard. Today, we take our values on human life for granted. We do so because we in America have had them so embedded in our culture for centuries. But had Christ never been born, it would have been a far different story. Human life would be quite cheap. The morality of any society can be judged on how it views and holds human life. Remove the influence of Christianity and Christ in the world, and you will quickly see how cheap life becomes. Secondly, because Christ lived, the world has changed the way it responds to those in need. Proverbs 14.21, he who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Before the advent of Christianity, there was no organized charitable effort at large in the world. The example of teaching of Christ changed the way the world reacted to those in need, especially the poor the widowed, and the orphaned. Hospitals, as we know them today, did not exist prior to Christianity. The great needs that arose, Christians met those needs, even things like the plague, which often meant that Christians were risking their very lives to care for those whose society had cast away and left to die. You can see how Christianity has had an influence on hospitals and caregiving centers. Uh, I grew up in Dallas, and that was very clear to me growing up, though I didn't know Christ as a young boy. Um, In Dallas, you have hospitals, and they are financed and supported and started and continued and propped up by different denominations and different religious groups within Christianity. I was born in Florence Nightingale Hospital, which later became called Baylor Hospital. Which religious group funded the Baylor Hospital series? The Baptists. That's right. Baptists did. And if you've ever been to um, the the, uh, hospital downtown Dallas, it's a sprawling, massive, huge complex of many buildings, very modern, very sophisticated medical care. But it's not just Baptists. For example, there's St. Paul. Which group supports St. Paul? 
the Catholic Church, and you have the Methodist Church, and you have the Presbyterian Church. Art, didn't you work at Presby? I thought so. Yeah. Nice complex. All these were provided for by different Christian groups. And the tendency early on was to name them after the groups that supported them or the individual that gave great money. The tide began to turn when uh, in Dallas, in North Dallas, they named one massive hospital, new hospital, after a particular individual with deep pockets, and they called it Dead Man Hospital. <laughs> True. It has since been renamed wisely. And now we tend to phase out the Christian element of hospitals, at least in name, uh, as we begin to change the name. Baylor is now known as Baylor, Scott, and White. We don't tend to think of a denominational group there. But my point is this. Hospitals and caring and love and nurture and advancement in technology and all these things, buildings and caregivers, came into being because Christ lived. W.O. Sanders, a skeptic, made this admission about the influence of Christianity. He said, I am tremendously impressed by the power of your faith. I have seen drunkards and libertines and moral degenerates transfigured by it. I have seen the sick, the aged, the friendless, comforted and sustained. And I am impressed by your wonderful charities, your asylums, your hospitals, your nurseries, your schools. He must shamefacedly admit that agnostics as such have built few hospitals and few homes for orphans. Our world without Christ would be a world without charity. Third, because Christ lived, the world has changed the way it thinks about education. Education is important in the scriptures. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6. And these words which I command you today, Moses speaking, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk about them when you sit down in your house and when you walk on the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, all the time, be using those teaching moments for your children, be educating them and training them up in how to walk wisely. Virtually every school you see, public or private, religious or not, is a visible reminder of the religion of Jesus Christ. The phenomenon of education for everyone has its roots in Christianity. It is Christianity that gave the rise to the concept of, every, of education for everyone. The greatest universities worldwide were started by Christians. Even though 
Some of them, or many of them, may be hostile to Christianity at this point. Nevertheless, they had their origins, their beginning, their financing, their planning, their implementation by Christians for a Christian purpose. And this includes Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Cambridge and Oxford. Of the first 127 colleges and universities started in this country early on, almost all of them had Christian beginnings. If Christ had not lived, education would be much poorer. Fourth, because Christ lived, the world has as its view has its view about self-government. You may remember the controversy some years ago over the statement made by Governor Kirk Fortas of Mississippi that this is a Christian nation. Boy, the flap that occurred by this became so prominent and so oppositional that he finally apologized for making that statement. Well, how about this? Is it true? I'm going to submit to you this nation got its start because of Christians. The pilgrims, very religious people, came from the old world to the new world, seeking the ability to worship freely in a manner of their choosing and not controlled by the state or government. This, this country was started in large part by Christians seeking to worship Christ. So exactly how much is or was the United States founded on Christian principles? Listen to these quotes. Many, if not most, of those involved in fashioning America, American independence, were committed Christians. Now, although uh, that is true, it was never meant to exclude other faiths. And that's one of the beautiful things about our country. We have freedom of religion. We have the freedom to worship as we choose or not to worship as we choose. I think that's one of the beautiful things about the liberty of our country, which was founded on Christian principles. The American patriot, Patrick Henry, stated... It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. When George Washington was inaugurated as the first president of the United States in 1789 in New York City, he got down on his knees and kissed the Bible. Then he led the Senate and the House members to a church for a two-hour worship service. Well, I'd like to return to those times. <laughs> At least 50 of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Christians. Abraham Lincoln the 16th president of the United States spoke with great wisdom, well worth remembering when he said, it is the duty of nations as well as men 
to owe their dependence upon the overruling power of God. And to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. We want our nations to be blessed. We want our country to be blessed. Let's win people to Christ and teach them to follow Christ. Fifth, because Christ lived, the world has changed its view about science. Now, I know there is a conceptional part of many that science and Christianity are poles apart and they're opposed to one another. Is that true? (laughs) No, not at all. Christianity had a large hand in forming and sustaining modern science. Many scientists who had deep impact were also committed Christians. Let me give you a few examples, just a few. In the area of antiseptic surgery, key, Joseph Lister. You can hear Listerine in that. The ability to kill germs. How important was that? Before discovering this, surgery often was certain death because they didn't know why. But people got infected from disease and died. Once antiseptic surgery came in, people lived. There was a doctor over in Europe who came to this realization. He begged with his fellow doctors, guys, at least when you're going from, you know, delivering one baby to another baby to another baby, at least wash your hands. It drove him nearly crazy that doctors didn't get it. They couldn't see the pattern that they were communicating disease from one to another to another. Christians did a great deal in this area. In the area of bacteriology, Louis Pasteur. Perhaps he had more of an impact on human life in our history than any modern scientist because of the deep impact in saving lives that this deep Christian had. The area of calculus. Anybody familiar with the name Isaac Newton? Yeah, that guy. Did you know that in the latter part of his life, he did less and less with science and did more and more about writing Christian tracts? Electromagnetics, Michael Faraday. And the list goes on and on. Science was started by Christians, furthered by Christians. Lives have been saved because Christ existed and Christians had a deep impact on science. Sixth, because Christ lived, the world has its view of human sexuality. Christ challenged the world on the subject of sexuality, condemning adultery and homosexuality and other sexually immoral immorality in general. When God gave his command not to commit adultery, he was protecting the sacredness and sanctity of the highest of earthly relationships, marriage between a husband and a wife. 
and seventh. Because Christ lived, there is the possibility of forgiveness for our sins. In the 19th century, Charles Bradlaugh, a prominent atheist, challenged a Christian, Hugh Price Hughes, to a debate. Hugh Price Hughes offered to accept on one condition, that each of them would bring people who had been impacted for the good by their respective philosophies. Bradlaugh would bring a hundred men and women who had been deeply impacted and had their lives changed for the better by atheism. And Hughes would also bring a hundred men and women whom he had personally led to faith in Christ and discipled, and their lives had been changed from drunkenness and, and so on to a life of productive wholeness. When it became clear that Bradlaugh could not produce a hundred, Hughes lowered the number to 50. And then 20. And then finally, one. If Bradlaugh would bring just one person whose life had been changed for the good by atheism, Hughes offered to bring a hundred whose lives had been changed by Christ. Bradlaugh withdrew from the debate. Of course, time does not permit taking, uh, talking of all the examples of lives changed by Christ. But just one example that I will present today comes from the stories of World War II. Sergeant Jacob DeShazer was a bombardier in General Doolittle's squadron. While bombing Japan, his plane was shot down by anti-aircraft fire. His crew parachuted, but were captured. The Japanese tortured them mercilessly. And DeShazer had only one desire, and that was to get revenge against his torturers. But someone brought a Bible to the prison. And DeShazer's heart, as he read this, was melted. And the hate he had for the Japanese was replaced with the love of Christ. And so, at the end of World War II, he committed his life to be a missionary and eventually went back to Japan as a missionary to the very people who had tortured him. A tract was written about this. And it was circulated among the Japanese people. And one of those tracks got into the hand of a deeply discouraged, miserable individual. His name was Captain Mitsuo Fushida. He was a Japanese officer who led the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. It was he, it is said, who had spoken the words, Torah, 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 to begin the attack. He too became a preacher of the gospel. 
And on the 25th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor, he went back to Pearl Harbor with a gift, a Bible inscribed with Luke 23, 43. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember when Christ was on the cross and one of the men crucified with him asked Jesus to remember him when he came into his kingdom? Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The death of Jesus paid the penalty, not just for past sins, but for all sins, for you and me. All our sins were placed on Christ. And then he suffered the just penalty of what we deserve, death. The wages of sin is death. And he died. He didn't have any sin. He didn't do anything wrong. He didn't deserve to die. He did this because this is the only way that we could be reconciled to God. And because God loved us so much, he was willing to allow his son to pay the just penalty. God can't just look at sin and say, no, I'm going to ignore that. Sin is moral rebellion in his universe. He's the king. He is the judge. He has a responsibility. Somebody put it this way. If, if, we, uh, if we took somebody that was really, really good, they might commit only seven sins a day. Or maybe really good, you know, like Dick Emery, only five sins a day. Of course, you know, they talked about if, if, if there was a, a countermeasuring sins and if we looked at Gary Ray's sins, it'd be like a fan. <laughs> Love you, Gary. Glad to have you back. Um, or if we took somebody that only had three sins a day, I mean, just one, one little bad thought, one little bad word, one little bad deed, just three sins a day. That wouldn't be much, right? We could just kind of ignore that, right? Now, wait a minute. Three sins a day, 365 days in a year, how many sins is... That's over a thousand sins in a year. And if a person lives to 70, how many sins is that? Over 70,000 sins. God can't merely look at that and say, you know, I I know you've committed 70,000 sins, but I'm going to let you in. He would cease to be moral if he did that. And so Christ came and took our place and the place of the whole world so that he could offer freely salvation to the whole world. And he died. But he didn't stay dead. The good news is, he rose again. And he has proven that he has power over death. And that gives us assurance that we too, 
can live forever. When we place our faith in him, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but has everlasting life. Many of you have come to believe this. You have received this. If you have never understood this before, if you've never received this, I offer you the chance to do so today. And if you believe that Christ died and was rose, risen again, has risen again for you to pay for your sin, the promise is valid. You have everlasting life. And if you do that today, I hope you will tell me or one of the other leaders in this church so that we can rejoice with you and so that we can help you on this awesome, wonderful journey called the Christian life. I give you the conclusion now. To borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, a good description of life on earth had Jesus never come would be Always winter, but never Christmas. If Christ had not come, neither of these individuals we talked about from World War II, nor countless other numbers down through the centuries, none of their lives would have been changed. If Christ had not come, life would be meaningless. If Christ had not come, there would be no forgiveness of sin. If Christ had not come, there would be no sure help to give us eternal life. But Christ was born. And oh, the difference it has made. The world is different because Christ lived. Father God, thank you for the life of Christ. Thank you, Father, for the difference he has made in my life and in countless lives throughout the centuries and will continue to until he comes again. Lord, we thank you for the blessedness of Christ our Savior, whose birth we celebrate in this season. May our hearts be warm to him. May our minds be challenged to serve him. We pray in his name. Amen.